This episode of the Tone Show is brought to you by Dice Envy, your source for dice and dice accessories. Noble Knight, where out of print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for July of 2018. Okay, maybe we're recording this a bit late. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book this time around is Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Uh, next month, no, not next month, November, we ended up missing a month, sorry, that's our late, late recording, I got crazy busy, um, but in November we will be reading Night of the Black Rose by James Lauder, um, it is the, the, we're going, getting back into a and d book for the first time in a while, since they haven't been publishing anything, but we're going back to an old one. But before we talk about Children of Blood and Bone, let's mention our sponsors. Dice Envy is a great online dice seller. They have a subscription service that Jeff has talked about in other episodes. Uh, but if you want to just go dice shopping, there's an option as well. Just swing by, pick out the dice you want, and buy them. Often there are dice that were previously featured in the subscription service, so you can still benefit from the way that they curate unique dice. Check them out at DiceEnvy.com and let them know the Tome Show sent you. There are a lot of subscription services out there that deliver things right to your door these days. Veggies, movies, meat, pet toys, artisanal jams, collectibles, RPGs, pictures of cool places, music, butter, dice. Wait, what? There is literally only one thing on that list that would make my life complete. A monthly subscription service for dice? Dice Envy has subscription services for dice. They send you a unique set every single month right to your house. Go check out their subscriptions, or if you just want to go buy some of their unique and interesting dice, head over to DiceEnvy.com and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. We also want to thank Noble Knight, our longest-running sponsor. Our pick this time around from Noble Knight is the new D&D coloring book, Adventures Outlined. It's a fun take on some classic D&D creatures and scenes ready for coloring. Oftentimes simple enough that kids could color it. Older kids probably could color it. Uh, But also has enough detail and complexity that adults seem to enjoy it as well. Or at least I know Tracy and I have been enjoying it, although she's colored in a lot more than I have. Right, Trace? I think I'm up to about 18 pages. 18 pages, and I'm working on my fourth. Um, So... You can check that out and many other great things at Noble Knight, but make sure you tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight? Thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. It's trying to sound creepy, though. All right, now, the book for the month, Children of Blood and Bone. Uh, a highly acclaimed book for 2018, right? Yes. Yeah, that's how I found it. 
Yeah, it was getting a lot of attention. I think it's even, it's already been optioned for for movies. There's a lot of anticipation for the rest of the series because this is book one of a series. Apparently, uh, it sounds like it, it sold for top dollar for a, a first book for an author. Yeah, yeah. No, from what I saw, you got option for being for a movie before you even got, got published. So yeah. So there's been a lot of anticipation around this book, a lot of positive talk around this book. Um, who wants to tell us what this book's about? Hmm. I, I want to hear from Tracy. <laughs> so I guess, do we do the text or the subtext? I think those are the correct terms for this. Well, let's start with the text. Right. And then we can get into the subtext. So the text is about, uh, it's not just a girl, but the, uh, girls, the to my in my opinion, the main character. I, I know there's a cast of yeah. at least three. Um, no, Zaley, I think was was always in my head the main character. Yeah, uh, who is turns out um, she can do magic in a world where or in a land where magic has kind of been forbidden, the magi and and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and so it's a story of her trying to basically save her world and save magic. Uh, against a quote-unquote evil, I'll call him a king, but uh, type figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although it's worth noting, when the story starts, she can't do magic, and nobody can do magic. Well, that we know of, there's no no known people that can do magic. Magic isn't just outlawed, it's been completely destroyed and eliminated. Yeah, well, because 11 years ago, the king killed all the magi when the gods basically abandoned because... In the past, it's revealed that some of the people who had magic abused their power. Right. and, and Or at and least according to the king, they did. Her mother is one of the, the magi killed. Mm-hmm. But the magi, even though they don't have magic, continue to be notable as magi because they're all born with white hair. Right. And so there's like a whole system of oppression that's based on mm-hmm. uh, taking people who have white hair, um, particularly if they can't pay like a basically attacks on their mere existence uh they mm-hmm. get taken and uh put into servitude yeah but pretty early on um Zaley, well trying to sort of help her family survive and and pay this tax and whatever um ends up running into the princess uh and the princess has an a, a, an artifact of sorts a scroll um that when Magi come in contact with it; it restores their magic. Right, and so, and so the, it's fa- it's fairly early on that she gets her magic back. Yeah, and so and the reason that they run into each other is that the the scroll gets discovered, um, and the princess's main attendant, female attendant, gets killed. Um, I forget the exact reason why. I think it. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Because she was magi. She was white haired. Yeah. Right? And she was able she was able to get power by touching the scroll. And so right. uh, the princess's father killed her main attendant. And so she runs off with the scroll. And in the middle of trying to... The princess to, does. Yeah, the princess does. And in the middle of trying to escape, she runs into Zaley. And Zaley helps her uh, finally escape out of the, the town with the scroll. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, in some ways... Um, Zaley def- defies D&D logic, right? Um, 
Because, like, what class is Zele? Well, she's clearly been been trained beyond the scope of most people in in armed combat, right? With the staff and what have you. Right. Um, but then she's also, like, our primary magic user. Um, uh, in Danny terms, I would probably see Zele as probably multi-class. Mm-hmm. I mean, or even in uh, D&D, because there's the Eldritch... Sort of the Eldritch Knight, but not really. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you multi-classed her, then I think she's higher level than other everybody else, though. Because, <laughs> like, she's just as good a fighter as anybody else, but then she's also got magic, right? The magic only shows up a bit later on. That's true. So. So maybe else, everybody else is continuing to level up in their, in their current level uh, classes, but she's picking up Sorcerer or something yeah. along the way. Yeah. And then we know that the king is one of the main antagonists, but the main person actually that we keep interacting with is the princess's brother. And not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, who who starts off as the antagonist and then isn't, and then kind of is off and on again uh, the antagonist, right? Yeah, and one of the main reasons for that is it turns out uh, he wears his hat a lot among other things, because he has a shock of white hair. Yeah. Not completely white-haired. Um, and I can't remember he, if he had that at the beginning, because I think he picked it up later uh, in a scene where he came in contact with the scroll, right? Right, yeah. So he didn't have white hair, but he touched the scroll, and then he developed just sort of this shock of white hair in the, in the middle of his head that he tried to hide by dyeing it and... And wearing his hat or helmet a lot and whatever, right? Right. Yeah. And so in the early parts of the book, we we see him as someone who's just like, he destroys an entire village trying to get the princess and the squirrel back, um, mm -hmm. among other atrocities. Uh, and so like that's the like first stage of the hero's journey mm -hmm. where we figure out who the heroes, or like, at least in quotes, may or may not be. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and everything. And then we yeah. figure out kind of like the MacGuffin or, I don't know, the driving force yeah, for no, the rest of the story. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Like, I, I felt like, like it was, it was definitely very much sort of that formula of, um, you know, horrible things are happening, but hey, you can fix it if you go get the MacGuffin over here, right? Right. Um, and, the, and the MacGuffin, and I, at one point, I thought the whole story was going to be the long journey to the, the temple. Uh, what was it? Chum, Chum, Chumbele? Something like yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, and it was going to be the long journey to the temple where they would then bring the skull to the temple and be able to do something about the whole no magic thing. And then it turned out that that, that ended up happening a lot faster than I expected. And there was this whole story afterwards. Uh, because once they get the... And by they, I mean um, uh, the the princess, uh, Zele, and Zele's brother. Um, was that Zane or is that the, the prince? That's Zane. Zane is the prince. So Zele, Zane, and Mari are going to Chendam. Yeah. Chambale. And the and the prince uh is is Anon. Yes. Right. Okay. He's pursuing them with uh Lekan, who's an assistant or a like a general and all that. Yeah. So there's yeah, there's there's another military officer sort of with them and keeping an eye on him. Uh, and a small army, I guess, uh, chasing after them, trying to get the scroll and the princess back. Um, but they managed to get to the temple. 
they find sort of possibly the last person on earth that kind of knows what's going on and what to do about it there at the temple. Uh, and he gives them two additional MacGuffins they need to deal with, right? So then it becomes a scavenger hunt story. Right. And, and I totally took over. Tracy was telling us the story. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's a scavenger hunt story in which they travel large areas. And so I think one of the things that we already say, are, you may have already noticed, is that there is a fair number of characters to the story. And it gets even further complicated because like, there's this whole thing where they... Um, basically, one of the, the items they have to get is held uh, in this arena, well, like be, uh, in an arena area where they have mm-hmm. to go out on a ship and be the last ship to survive this horrible bloodbath. I think there's at least seven other ships going on. Right. So it's, like a, it's like a, a death battle, um, <laughs> you know, only ship, a ship-based death battle, right? Right. And definitely thought, like started reminding me a little of Dark Sun type stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, with that, uh, if we're going to go D&D-wise. But it was also, like, I, I got a little bit of a Star Wars vibe there, too. Um, right, not yeah. the not, all the not the death battle or whatever, but the only reason that this was allowed to happen was that this place where the arena was is sort of, like, at the edge of the kingdom. And so th- they escaped the laws of the king and, and all that. Right. Yeah. It sort of had a Tatooine feel, almost. I definitely... Uh, and mean, meanwhile, Anon chased them as far as the temple uh, and, and ends up uh, developing his, his own magic because he, of his contact with the scroll that he's trying to hide and then ends up, like, killing that other officer, right? Yeah. He kills off Lacan, who was the other officer, yeah. uh, because she was about to treat, to treat him as a traitor to people and all that. Well, and he's scared out of his mind because he knows that if his father finds out that he's that he has magic, um, he's certain that his dad will, you know, execute him or whatever, like he did all the other magic users. Right. So he's trying. He's trying. He's trying to find a way to do, you know, make his dad happy enough that he'll either accept the fact that he has magic and just never use it, or to take the magic back away. Right. And we have flashbacks at, at some point during this time period. I can't remember exactly when. Of the, so his sister has a scar on her back. Right, that was the way it goes. Oh no. yeah, yeah. Or is it him that has a scar? One of them has a scar on the back. His sister. Yeah. His sister's got a scar from when they were like training or whatever. Yeah. Right, and he because their father really forced them and didn't want them because. Uh, the reason why they were killing all the Magi is because the Magi killed his family. And he mm-hmm. felt that the reason why his family died was because they were too soft and too weak. Uh, so when he had a new family, uh, which is the the, new, the current prince and princess, he wanted to make sure that they weren't weak. And he so, so he did like really horrible stuff to them, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically forced the, the brother to beat the crap out of the sister in order to, you know, make them both strong. Right. And that's sort of what we get out of out of this, which which really predominantly serves to to further make it clear to us that the king is it King Saran, yeah. is that the name? Saran or Saran, S A R N. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, these flashbacks really more than anything else to me. I mean, it, it helps solidify the the not so great relationship between the prince and the princess. 
Um, but it also helps, you know, jack up the, the villainy of the king along the way. Yeah, definitely. So they win the death battle using um, Zaylee's magic, right? At this point, she's she's learning how to control it more and more, and she yeah. summons basically a, a horde of undead. Yeah, spirits. Yeah, specifically, um, she used her blood magic. Yeah. Which is uh, like a big no-no in the world. <laughs> right. And it just about kills her. Right. Um, but she summons this horde of, you know, specters and ghosts and whatever and to destroy all the other ships, and they win. And the prize is the Stone of Immortality, which turns out is the sunstone that they need, um, which is MacGuffin number two, right? They've got the scroll, they've got the, the sunstone. They actually, at the temple, they were given the bone daggers. Oh, and the bone dagger that they were given, yeah. yeah. So there's the three items. And then they have to take the three items to a special place, which is an island, um, off the coast, wherever. Right. Out of out of curiosity, since we're talking about traveling to these different places, or whatever, did anybody have a map in their head about what this place looked like? What, is there an official map that we know of? In the book, there was a map. Uh, was there? Yes, I could get. The, I could. I could get my iPad and and uh, look at the map again, but. From my... I'm gonna. I'm just gonna look it up online here and see if I can find it. Yeah, because was. I think it was a little hard. Because I think you had the same problem I did, Jeff, and that we were doing the audiobook. Uh huh. And I had no idea. <laughs> well, so, so here's the thing, though, and maybe it's just because of the way things are described and the clear influences of the book. Uh, but in my head, I just sort of put all the events in Africa. Right. Um, and it was sort of in West Africa. And when they went to the island, it was the Mediterranean. And they even talked about like um, colonists who had come and failed to take over and whatever and were chased away and, and all of that, um, which very much seemed to be clearly influenced by, uh, you know, the, the British. Right. A, a description oh, yeah. of the British and how, you know, they were they came and tried to and tried to take over and whatever and were kicked out and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I found the I found the map online. Um, it's a there's a little bit Africanist to it, but it's a much small like it's West Africa, but like with oceans around it. Right, and that and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say like I had absolutely no idea. I just meant in terms of uh, oh yeah, because it was also a fantasy world. So like I, I there was a lot of like, I picked up on a lot of the stuff you're talking about, um, but I also uh-huh. knew it was a fantasy world. So to me, like sometimes it was like how far are things really? I couldn't tell with I don't know. I know it took uh-huh. a while, but why they said that going Route A would be faster overall than Route B, right. you know, was not necessarily something I could. I would just go by whatever they said. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. A, I'm, I, I have the map now from the digital copy, and uh, yeah, the, the overall shape is Africa-ish. It's kind of vaguely African-ish, but, but smaller, much, right? Much smaller. Yeah, I I would say probably looking at the the, the so probably a bit smaller than France. Hmm. Just by yeah, maybe yeah. I, I it's I mean when I look at the names on on the map, it I mean they went almost everywhere on the on the continent or island or whatever it is, right? Um, and there's clearly some like there's some clear. 
um, African influences, right? Even in the names, uh, beyond the that it's it's clearly built out of a certain uh, cultural mythology or whatever. Um, but like when I see places like Benin City or Lagos, which are major cities in the story, um, those are real world places that are names that have meaning to me, you know. Right. <clears throat> so anyway, that was that was an aside because th- we were talking about them going off, and I and it's, it occurred to me in my head I kind of envisioned that they were you know sailing off uh, into the Mediterranean. So I was curious how it actually looked on the map, on the official map. Yeah, right. so we're going to Kaduna, Morocco. Yeah. Uh. So what? Yeah. Where was the city that they were? Was it? Jametta? Was that where they were fighting in the arena? I think so. Oh, Go- or Gombe, maybe. I remember hearing all these names. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while since we read it because we were so we were we were so delayed in getting this recording done. But I believe they were headed to Kaduna for the ritual. Okay, I think so. Which would it from a if one compare to it would be basically Kaduna would be equivalent same location where Af- where Madagascar is in Africa. Okay, so they weren't going to the place that's labeled uh, as Holy Temple? Could be that, too. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> that one made sense to me. Yeah. But, but uh, And that's more like where Saudi Arabia is, but with a, a small sea in between instead yeah. of, like, you know, the, the even smaller sea that's actually yeah, there. Like I said, it's been over a month, so I'm not too sure exactly. Yeah. So after they get the sunstone, um, it's not just a matter of, hey, we got the sunstone and now off to the magic place where we can perform the ritual and bring magic back. Um, what happens in between there? So this is where I'm, I'm starting to get a little fuzzy. You guys have the, the plot thing. Is this where they go to the, I call it a forest, but when they meet mm-hmm. the other uh, basically magic users? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know they're traveling through and some of them get caught and so they try to do a whole rescue thing which Mm -hmm. at first doesn't go great because uh, these people are hiding in the woods or in the the jungle I forget exactly which um, Mm -hmm. because of the king. (laughs) So the moment that they know that the princess is there things become incredibly hostile. Right. And it's ironic that in all of this, like, they are the resistance, right? They're trying to find a way to bring back magic to to end the oppression of the king. And then they get captured by the resistance, right? Right. Because <laughs> this, this camp that captures half of them is the resistance. And the half that don't get caught are Zele and Anon. And that becomes an issue because Anon's been trying to hunt them down this whole time. But he started using his magic to sort of uh, get because his magic is to connect the minds of people or whatever, right? Right. And he's been using it to get in the mind of Zeles to help him hunt her down. Um, but in the process of doing so, he gets to know her a little bit, and then after he finally catches up to her here, where um, uh, the other two were captured, the princess and and um, Zane, um, like they fight for a while. And then become sort of reluctant allies of let's work together to get our people back, right? Uh, and and perform this rescue, and then fairly quickly they go from enemies to reluctant allies to romantically interested in each other. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like that happened awfully fast for somebody who literally was responsible for burning down her village earlier in the book. And a lot of it has to do 
and this is where like I think partially the subtext comes in a bit more but also I mean there's a long history of it in books I mean we talked about the same mm-hmm. sort of thing a bit with uh, Lorcan mm-hmm. at all in uh, the Brimstone Angels so <laughs> but, a- but Lorcan didn't like burn down her village <laughs> I know <laughs> <laughs> Right. And yet somehow I buy this relationship more. So there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and and the, the thing that we haven't talked about yet that happened was like made me cry. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, so. Or is it later in the story? We haven't gotten there yet. It, it has to do with they decide to have. So they end up resolving it with so and this is a recurring theme throughout the book other than like the fact that they're forced in the boats to actually kill folks that's not the way they want to go with things and there's huge costs whenever they do it and so they did find a way there's a little bit of a struggle that goes on and some people are hurt but overall they tried to find a way to um stop the bloodshed and the, the resistance welcomes all of them in and everyone starts to get an understanding of what's try- what they're trying to do and, and stuff like that. So they decide to have a festival. Mm-hmm. And they delay their journey to have this festival. Uh, and it's a huge thing. It's something that had uh, Zelie's mother survived, they probably would have been part of growing up. Mm. And at the end of the festival, the uh, soldiers come in and they're, like pretty much everyone gets killed. Yeah, and it's like it's a little like and they debate it a little bit too. Like this decision to like let's celebrate, let's have a festival. There's this whole like moral quandary that she goes through, uh Zele goes through of um do we use the scroll and give all of these people magic or do we not? Do I really want to be responsible for um you know having this contingent of people that have magic back when magic generally isn't back yet and whatever? Um, and then, and then there's also this like push and pull of, do you really have time to sit around and have a celebration? Like you're on a time crunch. You've got the three MacGuffins, but you still have to get to the magic place at, on a specific day in order to perform the ritual. And if you miss it, then you're screwed. So it, 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 there is a, a, an acknowledged sort of like, should we really be, be taking the time to, to do the celebration, but they do. And then, you know, people get killed and some of them get captured instead. Yeah. And, and like, it was really hard. So like, I, I know kind of late, if you've already read it, I didn't know be when I picked it, like including child death, <laughs> mm. which was kind of hard. Cause, uh, you know, Freddie is turning, uh, mm. turning two when it happens. So when mm-hmm. we read, he was 18 months to two. So that's kind of like a hard thing to read. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and for whatever reason that didn't bother me as much, but then she gets captured and, and in prison, Zayla gets captured and, and imprisoned, uh, and then fairly gruesomely tortured. Like it's, it's, She's tortured in more detail than I'm used to reading in, in stories where they're they're using a knife and carving the word maggot into her back. Right. Um, you know, which is pretty yeah. hardcore. Yeah. It was a hateful slur for purposes of def- in this world of defining what a magi is. They would use maggot as. Right. Yeah. 
when she loses her access to her magic. Yeah. And there's some, like, question of... Is is she losing her con her her magic because of some sort of mental or spiritual block that she's experiencing, uh, or is it because they were using specifically a material called magicite? I think that was the name of it, right? Yeah. Um, when they were torturing her, and magicite is known for being the material that in the world that is naturally like um, you know disruptive to magic, right? So is there like some trace magicite still in her system and that's why she doesn't have magic? Or has she sort of got this this mental and spiritual block and that's why she doesn't have magic? And I'm still not sure that we ever really get a definitive answer as to why she loses her magic. But we know she loses her magic uh, for a while. Right. Uh, but eventually, there is a rescue. Yes. They say Tane and Amari break into their cell, rescue, rescue Zelly. Mm-hmm. And they're basically, there's talk about if they should continue, they're worried because she doesn't know, but then they actually decide, no, we're not going to give up, they're actually going to go and actually go to the magic island, to the mm-hmm. temple, to, to to do stuff. And they hire... To try, to try to pull off this ritual. And, and it's worth noting that while she was in prison, um, Inan was there... And kind of complicit in the whole thing, but his argument is I was only complicit in it as much as I had to be because, um, you know, if I had argued against it, then I would have been locked up in chains with her. And this way I can kind of sort of try to protect her. And, well, he um, find himself powerless against his father. Basically, his father was there and he saw his father as well. As his well, he certainly felt powerless against his father. Yeah. Whether he was or not, I think is, is up to debate. <laughs> but but he has this this really um, almost annoying cyclical arc of you see him sort of being redeemed and then he he kind of falls and becomes not the good person you want him to be. Um, you know, and he's got his reasons for it, but you know, doesn't every great villain, right? Yeah. So. So they escape. They head off to the island. They um, infiltrate. They the what? They, they manage to go and infiltrate the island. This guy. Well, first they have to to get a, a ship to get him to the island quickly enough, and they manage to find what in my head again because of the Star Wars connection in this part of the world is their version of Han Solo, right? Yeah, a mercenary that was there and that they was able to hire to to get there. And he's kind of got this swagger to him and whatever, right? Yeah. And they eventually, they, they not only get to the island and infiltrate it, but they infiltrate it because um, they end up capturing and taking over one of the king's ships that's on its way there because, of course, the king has figured out where they're headed and what's going on, and he's going to you know, bring an army to this island and stop anybody from doing anything. Uh, so they steal one of the king's ships. They... they uh, incapacitate i guess the the people on board the ship and they dress like soldiers and infiltrate the island and then what Inan and king saran are, are are basically there fighting and attacking the ritual uh Inan destroys the scroll and also mm-hmm. fight and also mari was fights her father and actually kills him mm-hmm. which they don't have the scroll anymore, so they can't 
do the ritual, it's time. So Zelly basically tries to pull off whatever magic true force of will and prayer and call into the, the old gods to mm -hmm. help help our people out and basically try to help people who sacrifice themselves to who knows. Well, and it's worth noting, and we haven't talked much about the magic system uh, of this world, but basically when somebody develops magic, they, they're one of a certain kind of magic user, and they, those, that means they have access to a certain type of magic, right? Anon uh, uh, developed into a controller, I think, or a connector, a connector. And so he, he can connect people through their minds and, and what have you, through visions and, and all that. Um, Zele is a reaver and deals with the dead. And so she decides to conduct this ritual without the scroll that explains how to conduct the ritual by sort of using her blood magic again and, and bringing her magic back, right? Um, and tapping into the spirits of all of the magi that she can contact and all the things that they know about how to use magic yeah. to figure out the ritual and reaching out to the gods and all of that, even without the scroll. But also, I also gathered that she had read a bit of the scroll, so she was doing also by memory of the. She was trying to do as much of it from memory, yeah. yeah. So even though the even though the scroll itself had magical power itself, which is by touching, the the scroll would activate magical abilities. It was still just the words themselves, mm -hmm. to give power. And so I suppose by the time it's all said and done, the king is dead. Um, Zaley sort of like burns herself out but comes back to life sort of thing uh, doing this blood magic ritual to bring magic back to the world um, and, and that's sort of where we leave it off right they, they kind of succeeded but what happens next yeah and I mean even Amari developed some powers or it's implied and implied basically too, that they might have given magic not just to the magi, but to basically everyone in the country. Right. Right, which would solve in some ways part of uh, Zaley's concern in terms of because, I mean, while the the king was totally wrong, that <laughs> yeah. uh, there was that concern of like part of the problem was in balance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, throughout it, because without any sort of check that some some magi uh, apparently did abuse what they were supposed to do with uh, magic, and so if most people don't have it, then that's the big concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, this this idea of uh, like was the king wrong that there that magi were problematic before the war and before he wiped them all out. Uh, I mean, we don't really know, but we certainly get the implication that there may have been problems there, right? That the, the Magi were abusing their powers and what have you. Um, but turning around and using that as a reason to slaughter and then oppress large swaths of people um, simply because of who they are is, is equally problematic. Right. And maybe this and that's is... Where we start, Sorry. And I say, that's where we start to get into the subtext that Tracy wanted to talk about. Yeah. And uh, so um, 
I don't know the easy way to talk about the subtext, but the one of the reasons that the author decided to to write this book had to do with some events that in particular have been happening in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of police brutality against uh, people of color, and particularly African Americans or Black people. And it's worth noting that that this is not subtext that we are reading into the story based off of our interpretations. She actually includes an essay at the end of the book where she describes the the way these events in the United States influenced her wanting to, to write the book the way she did. Right. So this is the author's interpretation of the subtext, which I guess, you know, every book is is has a different meaning to, to every reader, right? But right. Um, at the very least, the author intended certain subtext. Correct, yeah. And that's where it also gets kind of interesting um, and also, while well, I talked about African-American, um, you know, from the author's point of view is West African-inspired. Uh, she's mm-hmm. Nigerian-American. Uh, um, so she has, like, kind of like a both-worlds type of thing going on, I think, is mm-hmm. fair to say. Um, but uh, in particular, just the treatment in the United States is what drove her to do this, to, to write this book. Uh, and it also comes across, but like, because you often hear those like, oh, and I don't want to give credence to a lot of these arguments, but, you know, if you go back far enough, the history is a bit, it's not clear, like, like if you go into the history of, of, of slave trade, right? Like there were some groups in Africa that sold other folks from Africa to whites mm-hmm. and brought them over. So um, clearly, to me at least, all very bad. But it's very hard sure. to say this particular group had or always all good. And I know that a lot of white supremacists use this argument, so I want to be very careful with it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there were a lot of, things going on that we probably would question but they don't take away you can't use them to justify what then happened at all right. <laughs> me. like in terms of enslaving people and still we have a 400 years of history where uh even though in our our charter <laughs> declaration of tendency say all men are created equal it, in reality mm-hmm. there's a very good argument that that is just not true and i don't believe it's true we don't treat everyone equally well not that not that you don't believe that all men are created equal or all yeah, people no, no, are created sorry. equal yeah, yeah, yeah. but that but that that we actually live up to that that goal correct yeah that is what i'm saying yes like, <laughs> no, we, we don't we don't treat all people equally like we just don't and i know some and that and that's certainly <laughs> that's certainly one of the the major themes of the story right is this idea of um of, of people in power using that power to systemically sort of oppress other people. Of course, it is also the story of those people um, rising up in defiance or at least beginning to like this. You get the impression that this is sort of the beginning of the pushback, the beginning of the revolution, if you will. Right. Yeah. And like the sort and and to me, it also calls back to uh, I think it was Kindred where talking too about how people would resist then um, because the resistance, one of the things that kept coming to me throughout this book is that the resistance that I'm used to in terms of the stories in particular from European uh, culture, in terms mm-hmm. of how one would resist don't match mm-hmm. up here. Um, you know, they're not trying to just be this 
these heroes that just happen to, they just go out and they do the thing and, and they get everything that they want and, and free the people and, and stuff like that. Right. It's way more complicated than that. And a mm-hmm. lot of times they don't want to do this direct, um, assault basically. Yeah. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they're, they're constantly working on, on doing indirect things. Sorry. Yeah. No, as someone who's looked out from outside and all that, and I mean, yeah, the, the whole re- resistance and I mean, previously, you know, the Underground Railroad, which was just secretly moving people place to place. And it was not like just, just big tunnel, just people a lot. And I've watched, the, been watching recently the series Handmaid's Tale, and you see the resistance in there, and it's just like letters being written about what's happening. It's not like one person caring. So those are the type of resistances that you're sort of seeing and expect. Yeah. And and it's interesting because in this story, like there's a, there's effort to be made to point out that these are not sort of the great heroes that seek out to lead the resistance, right? That is that is far from their goal and and a lot of effort is made to to make clear sort of their doubts and their desires to just sort of give up or to go back to normal life or whatever and that to to sort of help normalize the characters and and make it clear that these are these are just people uh, who got caught up in this situation? Who saw, you know, Zaley's just a, a girl who is trying to help feed her family and take care of them and pay their taxes or whatever. Uh, but she saw somebody in need, and rather than step aside and keep to herself, she she stood up and did something, right, to help somebody who needed help. Uh, and that sort of sets the ball rolling on this this whole crazy thing. On the other hand, one of the things I really enjoy about this book is that. You've and we we've mentioned like it's clearly sort of a West African inspired fantasy story, but it's still it's still recognizable as a fantasy story. Like it is the grand epic scale and it's magic and it's um, you know riding giant cats and fighting with swords and and uh, you know arena combat by boats and and summoning the undead and and all of these things that that people familiar with with sort of um, more traditional or typical Western fantasy would recognize and relate to. Um, but at the same time, you can tell it's very clearly rooted in a different tradition with different um, with different ideas about you know, you know about how the gods work, about how magic works, about what creatures are what and and how society functions, uh, the naming conventions obviously like it it's clear that well, you can recognize it as fantasy. It's also fantasy from a different perspective than we're used to seeing. And that's something I really appreciate. Because like I've seen Western fantasy a lot. Um, it's nice to get a, a, a fresh vision of what fantasy can be from a different perspective. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so any other thoughts? What else do we, th- do we think about uh, Children of Blood and Bone? Well, we covered a bit for purposes of D&D, like we were saying about a class and all that for Zelly, is there any ways that we can possibly, how we, we present such a story in a D&D uh, format? Hmm. Is D&D even the best way to do it, too? Well, I mean, there's always the question of whether certain game systems are, are more or less flexible, but I think this could run as a D&D story easily i mean it's basically um 
it's basically a party that gathers together to go on a on a quest to to collect the the three magic items and, and conduct a ritual, right? Yeah. Uh, the primary non D and D niche of it is, of course, you'd have to sort of reimagine D and D magic to make it work, but I think that's doable, right? I mean, the schools of magic kind of sort of align in certain ways that you could you could kind of squint and thematically choose your spells right and 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 get it to work. Um, and the coming from the gods, whether magic comes from the gods or whatever, that you can make that happen in D and D. I think the the least D and D ish of it is the 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 predominance of humanity, right? Everything is all all the characters, all the villains, all the monsters, whatever. They're all they're all humans. Yeah. Um, the only thing non-human that comes up very often is is big cats because that's what they ride around on, right? Because they're West African, and so rather than riding around on horses, they're riding around on you know big leopards or whatever. Right. In the, in the way I was seeing uh, movement, those for purposes of uh, the the Dragonlance series of adventures, because hmm. they are also going to get artifacts to return magic instead. It's divine magic they're returning. Mm-hmm. You could s- sort of scratch off the, the serial numbers, make some changes, and you could probably grab and reskin it to be a similar story. Yeah, there's certainly some some similar similarities in sort of the, the formulas of the those stories, right? Yeah. yeah, I agree. Any other thoughts about about this book uh, compared to D and D, I think like you could figure out ways to, and I don't know if it's good or not to do it, but to kind of um, replicate that system of, of how like how groups really do resist, like from real life examples. I think mm. you could get that into it into D and D a bit more, and it would be interesting. It all depends on why your players want to play, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, I, I don't want to just reduce it to like a skill challenge or anything like that. But right. um, if you did have to start thinking of it in terms of, of of game terms or like when you might be able to... So like there's two ways you could do it. You'd be like, this role does get you this like because a lot of it is is it's small and incremental which is very much like a lot of D, at least a lot of uh, in the past like in third edition and 3.5 and fourth edition in particular like there's these it's all small incremental differences right there's not these huge like all of a sudden you have this unless you're 20th level right and that does match to like what's going on in that world in terms of trying to get change to happen uh mm-hmm. but i don't i never but the problem I have with that is I don't, I don't, I'm so afraid of making it, of minimizing what's going on. Minimizing it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, For purposes of RPGs, there is an RPG called Dog and Dog, which is about colonialism, that where oh. mm-hmm. one person who plays basically the dungeon master plays the, colo- the, co- the colonials, and when mm-hmm. else is playing the, the natives. They're colonized, yeah. And it does play about by listening to rules or resisting and you either create a story where at the end you do have colonists that possibly 
will sacrifice everything and die for mm-hmm. and pure. And you can even have the situation where a colonist, uh, someone who's a native who basically sells out to to the colonists and basically just so they can survive. And so if people want to go on that aspect, they, they might want to check out Doggy Dog. Yeah, although I would argue that a lot of even traditional D&D stories are, like, it's not unusual to have in a D&D adventure or story or whatever um, the story of the player character is going out and fomenting resistance against the the tyrannical ruler and whatever. Like, that is a story that's been explored. Uh, and this brings a much deeper sort of thought-provoking way of, of thinking about how to do that. Right. So, um, so if we're going to c- compare this to D&D, we've already said that Zele uh, is maybe a fighter-turned-sorcerer. Uh, what do we think the other characters are? I mean, I think the easy ones are that I think Zayn and Anon are probably both fighters. Yes. Uh, Amari to me is more interesting. Yeah. Doesn't Anon have a little bit of, I don't know, a psionic? Oh, yeah, I suppose. Because he's got the, once he develops his magic, right? Yeah. He's got, he, he starts multi-classing in psionics. Uh, I could see that. Is Amari more roguish or not? Well, and so here's my, like, Amari ends up becoming, like, and she really comes to her own in the in the the sea arena, right? The ship yeah. arena combat, right? Um, but she really comes together as a leader and an inspirer of people uh, in that scene. And that shows up again several times throughout the rest of the book. Uh, if it was 4th edition, I would say she's a warlord, but I almost, in 5th edition, want to make her a, a bard, yeah. except that we haven't seen her do, you know, the song thing yet. But not all bards have to sing. No. I mean, the the inspiration could be also just stories or speeches or talks and mm-hmm. all that. So, And that certainly would be in line with yeah. where she's at. A more of a leader-type character. Right on. Okay, so any any last thoughts on the book, on the book as compared to, to D&D or of interest to D&D uh, folks? Uh, last thoughts before we close it up. It is a very enjoyable book, and I, if people, I've read it twice, and it gets better each reading, so. There you go. I look forward to the sequel. Uh, given that this book came out in 2018, um, I don't know how soon we can expect a sequel. I, I find that typically for things like this, the fastest we'll get them is about once a year. And more typically, it's oftentimes a, a year or two in between. Yeah. And um, I also really enjoyed it. Uh, I think the only thing that I would point out, and maybe I just misread it, um, I saw it listed as a young adult book. Mm-hmm. And I know there's also a lot of controversy when it comes to what, a, like, there's now, like, some people are trying to push for a new adult category, meaning um, people who are probably, like, very late teens or early 20s, because mm. there is, like, that aspect of sex in it. I mean, there's a little bit of an aspect of sex in it. There's a lot of violence in it. Yeah. And so that was, like, it was hard at first because uh, I was just like, well, I don't know. This doesn't feel like a young adult book in that way 
Um, and it also came up because it would have been a book, like I would have recommended there was that teacher recently on Twitter within the past month or so that was looking for, he's a male teacher with, with all female class, I think it was, or mostly mm. girl class. And he was looking for young adult books to recommend. And it's like, oh, I'd recommend this. And then I found out they were like middle school kids. And I was like, mm. right. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is tricky, right? Because... And I'm finding a lot of bookstores and and libraries and whatever are differentiating teen books versus young adult books. Uh, And and what I've read here is not out of line with a lot of what I've seen in young adult books, which, if I'm being honest, is largely being read by – I mean, when people start reading them, they're probably like eighth grade or older, right? Right. Um, And and honestly, I – I taught seventh graders for 14 years. I, I saw seventh graders reading these these sorts of books as well. Um, but it's a, it's a, I think it becomes a little more common as they get older. So I didn't find this to be out of line with a lot of other YA books that I've read or that I've heard of or I've discussed or whatever. Uh, but certainly if I was making recommendations to a teacher, um, I would probably just avoid the YA category altogether because it's going to have right. – it's coming from a teacher, right? I might – like, I would have students that I would recommend this book for in seventh grade, but I would never recommend it to them as their teacher. Because as a teacher, there are certain lines I have to keep in mind, right? Right. And that's why I brought it up more, because like, it's not necessarily that I don't think kids should read it or, or not. It's just more surprising compared to what people say they think they want for that age group. Right. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's it's worth noting, like... There is a teen category that involves things like your your Percy Jacksons and, and that kind of stuff, right? Um, and then there's the YA category, which is things like this or The Fault in Our Stars or even like um, um, the the Insurgent series uh, and that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's a different category. The book was published by Henry Holt Books for Young Readers. So the publisher had the access of doing for the young adult crowd. Whether, mm-hmm. But your conversations states how well you feel. That it, well, yeah. and, and Tomi Adeyeme uh, has discussed her work in young adult fiction and what have you. So I think it was very clearly targeted for that category. Um I think it's just a matter of people need to understand very clearly what that category is and what it's not. Yeah. Right. Cause, so. and, I know, and I don't mean to take away, because I know this is about the book, but I, I saw recently a conversation about something that was, um, I don't know how to put it, it was like fan fiction plus other stuff that was way more adult than people expect it for mm-hmm. something that was called quote-unquote young adult, but the book itself like this had some sex scenes in it. Sure. So it, it's clear that like out in the market that people aren't clear as to what these different categories mean. Right. Yeah. I think that's true. So that's a, a heads up for folks. Make sure you're keeping that in mind when you decide to give this to your children. There's sex and there's lots and lots and lots of violence. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and call that the end of this episode. It is time to say goodbye. We want to thank all of you great folks who help us pay the bills, such as our sponsors, Noble Knight and Dice Envy. I also want to thank all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash the tome show. 
and those of you who shop at Amazon and DMs Guild using our affiliate links at thetomeshow.com. And you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can uh, find me on Twitter at SarahDarkMagic or through SarahDarkMagic.com. You can find Jeff on Twitter at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, or at The Tome Show. And you can find Eric at Eric M. Pack, E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. Show notes and other great shows are at TomeShow.com. Uh, and that is our thoughts on Children of Blood and Bone. Next up in not September, what do we say? November, we will be reading Night of the Black Rose by James Louder, going back to some old school D&D novels. Until then, keep up, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.